I do want to appreciate um, Jamie for being here. He was up way too late, as he said. <laughs> um, and a lot of you were. A lot of you were up pretty late last night. Um, Erie High School prom and all of that. And I want to thank uh, you as a congregation for allowing uh, the school to borrow all your tables and chairs. Maybe you didn't know that, but that happened anyway. Years ago, um, how many, um, just show of hands, how many blues music fans do we have in the house tonight? Any blues going on? Okay, old, old blues. Uh, I've never heard of this guy, but I've heard the song, Albert King. Albert King, old uh, African-American blues player from the 50s, 60s. He had a song that he wrote called Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven, But Nobody Wants to Die. Isn't that true? I mean, everybody like, oh yeah, I'm going to... Don't want to do what it takes to get there on a number of levels, but I'm going anyway. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the sentiment. Have you ever noticed we do everything we can as a society to keep on living. I mean, survival, you, you don't want to rush into dying. That's also unhealthy. Uh, but we have manufactured ourselves and commercialized ourselves to the nth degree to survive. I mean, you think about it. All the commercials you see, all the stuff that's sold, food, to health food to help you live longer, and supplements that will give your body what you need so you'll live longer, and long-term insurance so you'll live longer and be secure in your long life and life insurance and, and all that kind of stuff where we just buy things, exercise equipment that we don't use, um, cosmetics that say, this is age-defying. Wait, what? This will keep you from aging? Really? Oh, it'll make you look like you're not that old. Uh, but because we all, we all know that looking old is bad. So buy this and you won't look so old. You know, it'll, it'll hide all that stuff that you've been carrying for years and years. Um, and then on the other side of the coin, we engaged in all manner of habits and other lifestyle choices and other commercials that were sold to buy this and do that that's completely unhealthy, completely detrimental. And we're like, oh, you only live once. Yeah, well, how long you want to live? I mean, you know, you're going to the gym to, uh, to exercise and work out, and you stop for a dozen donuts on your way home. It's kind of counteractive, counterintuitive. We, we, we communicate very different things by our choices, and we're prone to just, I don't know, throw caution to the wind. Oh, well, you know. Why is it? that we live in a world, and this may be news to some of you, we live in a world where everybody who's in it has a 100% mortality rate. 100%. Everybody in here is going to die. Aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> but it seems to take us by surprise. And I'm not taking this lightly because it is a major deal. I mean, some of you, even very recently, Understand this for yourselves. But it is a surprise. Sometimes it takes us, some people are ready. And I've talked to people who are ready. 
Yep, I'm not afraid of it. Yep, I'm mentally prepared for it. I am spiritually prepared for it. I am ready. Lord, take me home whenever you want. That's a healthy thing to say. But there are other people, have you noticed, and maybe you're one of them, that treat death like they do Christmas every year in this way. Oh, it's coming? You know, November 1 comes around, or December 1 comes around. Oh, Christmas. Oh, yeah, I forgot. What do you mean you forgot? It's on the calendar. Every December 25th, there's Christmas. Oh, I haven't saved any money. Well, what do you mean? What? What kind of notice did you need? Somebody put it in your calendar. March. Okay, start saving for Christmas. It's going to come. It's come. Christmas is coming. Just to let you know. But every year you run into people like, oh, they're surprised by it. I don't really think we should. The difference is we know when Christmas is coming. Even if we choose to avoid it, procrastinate, deny its reality, we know in the back of our heads, this is coming, and I know I'm not ready for it, and I know I'm not making plans for it. The difference between knowing Christmas is coming and you don't know when you're dying, when you're dead. You don't know when that's going to happen. Nobody does. And so we avoid it. We procrastinate getting ready for it. We don't prepare emotionally, spiritually, mentally relationships. We don't prepare. We just hope it doesn't come too soon. Sometimes we get hints that death is coming, don't we? I mean, if, if you had a, a, long, a loved one with a long-term illness, and, it's, and it is, well, they just said, you've got so long. Well, they can be wrong. They can be really wrong about that. But it, at a certain age, it just keeps getting more real. Um, every time I, I go home to visit my parents, uh, my dad has... The, the thing where he's like, you know, you and your sister, you know, where, you know where the paperwork is, right? You know this is the file you go to when this happens. And, you know, if, if one of us goes, those are conversations that are hard to have but healthy to have with your kids and grandkids or f- close friends that you trust. But still, even then, some folks don't prepare financially or relationally or spiritually. They know it's going to happen eventually. They just don't do anything about it. But sometimes you get a scare, don't you? Have you ever been like, ah, oh, that, that was close. Whew. Okay, that, you know, clear now, but that was, maybe it was an accident, maybe it was a near-death experience, a heart attack, something that rattles us for a while and gets us really serious about, oh man, I've got to prepare, I've got to do something, I don't have a will, I've never talked about this, and nobody knows this about, uh, you know, we, we get really intent for a while about, better habits, and more conversations. And then, well, life just kind of keeps going and we get a little busier and we forget about that and the adrenaline rush is gone and life gets kind of back to normal and we slip back into old habits. You know, the thing that dies the least is old habits. They don't die well. I, when, uh, when we went home uh, to visit my folks um, over spring break, I was talking with my stepmom, and um, she talked about visiting an elderly lady. Now, my stepmom's 72, and she's visiting an elderly lady. <laughs> I don't call 72 elderly, just to make sure I understood here. 
she's visiting an elderly, elderly lady in her church, and this, this 90-year-old looks at Susan and says, take care of your body, please. <laughs> and, you know, you just take care of yourself because you're going you're gonna to live with this all your life, and, and you need to be able to, to walk and to digest food and to chew and things like that. And if you don't take care of yourself, it's going to be harder the older you get. And the same is true with your relationships and with your spiritual life. Take care. But it's, it's hard to have those confrontational, kind of uncomfortable conversations if it's not if it's not the norm, if it's not something that you feel like you've ever talked to your parents about, if they're still around, or with your, with your kids or, or extended family, we have a tendency to avoid it. <clears throat> Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus never did that. He went out of his way to avoid... Um, not talking about it. It was like he brought it up all the time and his disciples were upset. He would say things again and again. I'm going to Jerusalem. I am going to be handed over to ungodly people. They will kill me. And his disciples would just change the subject. No, 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 that will never happen to you. I don't want to hear it, Jesus. No, no, no. But Jesus also faced death head-on in his ministry. How did he, he handled people who came to him with these life-threatening illnesses and he healed them. He took care of those who were dead. I mean, there were people, the 12-year-old girl did die. He raised her to life. Then there was that funeral procession marching out of a town called Nain and Jesus gets in the way, puts his hand on the casket and says, hey, stop, and raises that young man, gives him back to his mother, And so one of Jesus' closest friends was sick to the point where it was obvious that Lazarus was not going to make it. Lazarus and Mary and Martha were some of Jesus' closest friends, disciples, supporters. And you look in John 11, and it tells the story. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Connection point there. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Implication, please come ASAP. Verse 4, When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Jesus isn't worried. He doesn't get rushed. He's not surprised. Jesus does give some explanation, however. Why is Lazarus sick? What's the purpose here? Well, what does he say? He says, it's for God's glory so that God's Son might be glorified through it. That is the sickness that he says will not lead to death. So he gives his disciples a little bit of a riddle, a little bit of a mixed message 
here, and we could, we could stop right here, um, and we'd have enough to go home. I mean, how many health and wealth got prosperity preachers have you heard say, God doesn't want you sick. God wants you happy and healthy and whole and, and lots of money pouring in so that you can give to my ministry and line my pockets and, and give me my private jet. That's what he wants. But so far as I know, every one of those people are going to get sick and die someday, no matter how much faith they have. So what is, what is the deal here that God can, get, God can be glorified through a sickness? Jesus said Lazarus' sickness would result in God getting worship and praise, in Jesus himself receiving glory because of this sickness. So in order for that to happen, Jesus doesn't come. For two more days. How many of you like waiting on your prayers to be answered? Nobody. How many of you ask, why, does this, why is this happening? Why, why did Rick and Nancy have to get sick? Why did Rick have to get sick over there in Jordan and be in ICU for, for a couple of weeks with kidney failure? I'm, I'm thinking somebody in that hospital, some Muslim needs to hear about Jesus. And they are. A number of times. I don't know exactly why this is being delayed for him, but I do know that God will be glorified through it no matter how it works out. Jesus liked to speak in riddles sometimes. Keeps his people on their toes. But after a while of the disciples not understanding, oh, he's asleep, oh, he'll wake up. No. Verse 14, he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And that would have been shocking enough, but then he went on, and I'm glad I wasn't there. Wait, what? I'm glad I wasn't there for your sake, so that you may believe. I think Jesus has a bit more of an agenda than our personal comfort and security. Why would Jesus say he was glad he wasn't there? He answers the question, so that you may believe. You mean Jesus knew what was going to happen to Lazarus and he's okay with that? Yes. Do you mean that Jesus purposely didn't help immediately when they asked him to? Yes. Do you mean Jesus was glad he wasn't there? He said so himself. Why? Three different things he said. The purpose of this was to give God glory, that Jesus be given glory to, some worshipful attention, and three, that his disciples might believe. Do you get where the priorities are for Jesus? You know, normally when God doesn't answer our prayers for healing or help exactly the way we want and when we want, we end up, sometimes, end up creating the opposite effect. That somehow or another, when Christians' prayers are not answered, what does the non-believing world do? I told you prayer is nothing. I told you, oh, thoughts and prayers, that helps a lot. Sure, I've heard a lot about that lately. And so we're kind of embarrassed, frankly, when our prayers aren't exactly answered the way we want and when we want. And sometimes 
and, and the struggle is real that when healing doesn't happen, some people have completely just walked away from the faith. God disappointed me. He let me down. He, he took my loved one or my friend. And it doesn't lead to belief. Sometimes we, let it, we allow it to lead to unbelief because of our own selfish and prideful self-centeredness. When, do, when Jesus does show up to carry out his purposes, we each have different ways of reacting. Look how Mary and Martha react to Jesus. Both of them run to greet him. One at a time, Martha first. When Jesus does show up in your life, do you run to him? Are you anticipating his coming to you? Or are you holding back going, where have you been? <laughs> what, what, yeah, what explanation do you have, Jesus, for not doing what I ask you to do? That's not what we get from Martha at all. Look at what, look at what Martha does here. Verse 20, when Martha heard Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now you can read this as a gentle rebuke. You can read it. Maybe she's crying. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Martha affirms Jesus' authority. She affirms his lordship, even in her disappointment, even when her prayers weren't answered, her request was not fulfilled. Here's the timeline. And this, this, this helped me a little bit. Lazarus is sick. Lazarus is sick. Lazarus is sick. Mary and Martha, do we talk to Jesus? Do we try to find him? Where We think he's up where, you know, where he is and... and do, this is looking bad. We don't want to bother him, but Lazarus, oh, wow, okay, this is really getting real here. We better go get him. Somebody needs to go get Jesus. He's up near the Jordan where John was baptizing, according to chapter 10. That's about two days' journey. You better hoof it. Get out of here, pal. Go get Jesus because we don't have much time. Two days later, the servant gets there, finds Jesus, and says, you got to come. Lazarus is sick. That's the day Lazarus dies. Jesus stayed where he was two more days and then made the trip two more days. And when he gets to the tomb, what does Martha say? He's been dead four days. Been dead four days. Martha, to her credit, She affirms Jesus' power, the relationship he has with the Father. And she, sh she says, I know God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha heard him, but she interpreted it differently. She says in verse 24, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. You know, we all have that kind of hope, don't we? And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection. And the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. 
it's clear that Martha's faith in Jesus is not shaken. Have you ever been through a crisis, a death of a loved one, a loss of a parent, and just questioned God entirely? Maybe you've lost a spouse. Maybe you've, and you just begin to question, God, are you really there? Do you really care? And I'm inspired by Martha here. That even when Jesus does show up late, (laughs) she affirms everything about him. And Jesus throws her for a loop. I am the resurrection. I am the life. You see, resurrection isn't just something that will happen someday. Resurrection is a person that gives life now. It's not just a one-time event. The presence of Jesus continually transforms us into a new person. See, there's the process. There's, there's the point in time, and then there's the process. When you trust in Christ, you're forgiven of your sins. You walk out of the baptistry. You are clean. You are new. Does that mean you'll never sin again? Absolutely not. But Jesus begins to work on you and heal you and bring you to a place where you look more like him every single day. You are continually made new after you were made new. Make sense? It's a continual process in relationship. He continually weeds out the death that is in us. He took care of the punishment, but now he's taking care of the power of sin. The penalty of sin is taken care of, but then the, the presence of sin continually taken away. Jesus said, He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Well, which is it? (laughs) I'm going to die or am I not? Let Let me rephrase this with a little bit of interpretation, if you allow me. He who believes in me will live forever, even if he dies here on earth. And whoever lives eternally with me in heaven will never experience hell, otherwise known as the second death. I have to point out here what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, whoever follows all the rules will go to heaven. He didn't say anything about being good or standing for truth or having perfect attendance in church or voting for a certain political party. He didn't give any directions about how much money you should give to the poor or what kind of music you should listen to. He said, believe. And that's more than just a mental exercise. That is an act of surrender and trust with your entire life. To believe is an act of faith. When we place our trust in Jesus, we find life where there was only death. We find forgiveness where there was only shame. We find hope where there was only despair. We find strength where there was only weakness. And the question he asked Martha is the question he asks all of us. Do you believe this? Do you believe what Jesus said? Not just with your head, but with your entire life. Oh, but we've almost forgotten. There's a dead guy still on the tomb. (laughs) Here's the question for you. If Jesus knew, 
Lazarus had died, if he knew the sickness would not end in death, if he knew what he was going to do, even though death was involved, if he knew he was allowing Lazarus to rot four days, only to bust him out healed and whole, why is he weeping? You ever thought about that? I mean, look at this text. Look at verse 33. After talking to Mary, Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible, right there. You want to memorize a Bible verse? John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. Got it down. Got one anyway. Some of you think you can't memorize scripture. You just did. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. And verse 38, it says, Jesus once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. I'm wondering if, I mean, if you knew the end of the story, would you be, would you be acting that way? I mean, if it, were just, if it were just us and our own kind of conventional wisdom, you'd almost think Jesus would be waltzing in going, it's going to be okay. It'll be fine. No sweat in this one, you know. Where's, where's he at? Let me go see him. Hey, Lazarus! You know, I mean, you just think he's got all the confidence in the world. He knows exactly what power is going to come from him to get that get dead guy out. And you'd think, why is he weeping? Deeply moved, it says. Troubled in spirit. Uh, deeply moved. I'm not sure that those words give the kind of intensity that this original language here implies. Mark Moore's commentary brought this to light for me. He says the Greek word, which is a lot of letters all strung together that I can't pronounce, literally means to snort like a horse. You ever, you ever, you ever done? How many people cry like that? Like you just... Just, you just shake. Okay. Um, the word, and the word is generally used for anger, not sadness. Hmm. And then the word for troubled is to be stirred up and agitated like, like a storm-tossed sea. Jesus isn't just sad. He's wrecked. There's something going on in that man. He's convulsing. He's... He's using both sleeves, you know what I mean? I mean, it's just like an ugly cry. How come? Well, it's the same reasons you cry, same reasons I cry, when I know a loved one is with Jesus. I know where they're at. I understand the faith they had. It's still, it still wrecks you. There's still a hole in your, your, your life where that person was. But it's more than that. It's more than a self-centered cry. And, and it's hard because I think some very well-intentioned people, and maybe you, know, you and I have said these very things to people who are crying at a funeral of a Christian. And what do you hear? Well, they're in a better place. Well, they're not hurting anymore. Well, you'll see them again someday. All of that is perfectly true. 
that doesn't mean you can't weep. And what's worse is when people get up and say, well, so-and-so wouldn't want us to be sad right now. What are you talking about? If you weren't, if you didn't, if we didn't react in some kind of emotional state, we wouldn't have loved them so deep. Deep love means there's a deep reaction. If all we would do is just say, oh, well, I guess we'll see him again someday. You know, it's all good. Let's go home, have potato salad. That'd be a terrible funeral. That'd be awful. That'd be dishonoring that person and the effect they had on, their, on your life. If Jesus is our example, I think it's okay to cry at a funeral of a Christian because, frankly, death is not welcome here. Death is an invader in God's good world. I begin to imagine this scenario with Adam and Eve in the garden, and God says to them, don't eat from that fruit of that tree in the middle of the garden, because if you eat of it, you will die. And I'm, I'm just imagining Adam and Eve standing there going, die? What's die? What does that mean? I've never seen that before. What's, what's dying? You know, I mean, honestly, if you've never seen anything in reality like that, how, how would you, they obviously understood something about what that, the consequence was going to be, but they'd never seen it before. Death is a consequence of sin and rebellion, and it's not welcome in God's world. But Jesus came to conquer death by dying. And I have no doubt that one of the things grinding through Jesus' heart right then was the reality that he would face a couple of months down the line. That he himself would be in a tomb. He himself would go through an excruciating death, bearing the sin of all mankind on himself. His body broken, his blood spilled for the redemption of humanity. And it's right to be deeply bothered by sin and death. It's right to be deeply bothered by injustice and by brokenness. And it's right to be deeply bothered by the things that break the heart of God. It's also right to believe that God will and is setting all things right again. And he will one day restore all things and make all things new. And so he came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. And here's Martha. But Lord, by this time there's a bad odor. It's been there four days. Don't you know what happens to a body after four days? It's not pretty. You sure you want to do that? And Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And he raised Lazarus from the dead. The no longer dead man came out. His hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. 
you imagine the crowd? And there was a crowd. Can you imagine the crowd? Slack jaw, buggy eyed. <laughs> what just happened here? And, and Jesus has to give them instructions. It's not like they buried him in his best suit and tie. In that age, they wrapped the body. It's like he's a mummy. He's like a butterfly in a cocoon trying to come out. And if he's trying to move, it's like, you know, just almost rolling out. And Jesus is just, let, hey, unwrap him. He's trying to get out. Let him go. Don't make him wriggle on the ground like some, you know, worm or whatever. Just get him unwrapped. And then, oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, sure, yeah. Just let's, let's get back, snap back to what this is really happening. Jesus didn't just rouse someone who had stopped breathing. He, did, he, he reversed the, the, the effects of four days of decomposition, rigor mortis, and all the other unseemly things you healthcare professionals understand what happens to a body after it's been not breathing and not pumping blood for four days. He reversed all that. This is another reason why Jesus waited so long to get there. There was Jewish tradition. It's not in the Bible, but it's Jewish tradition that when a person died, their spirit hovered around for three days in case something happened to the body to get reanimated and the spirit was right there to refill the body. But after three days, it's like, eh, guess I'm dead. You know, and then it splits. Four days, no chance. Not a chance. Not one. Except when Jesus shows up, and the one who created life has power over death. There's no question in anyone's mind. Only the power of God can do this. And many put their faith in him. And the question that someone asked in verse 37, before he actually raised Lazarus, someone, people asked, could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man kept this man from dying? Why, yes. Yes, he could have. But he didn't. He did one better. The question for us is, isn't just the one that Jesus asked, do you believe this? But I think a further question might be, could, could he who reversed four days' worth of death not free you from a sin? Could the one with authority over the grave not take away your shame? Could the one who saw the future not take away your uncertain future? I mean, not take away your fear? Could he do that? I think he could. I think he could handle whatever you have to throw at him. And more. Could the Son of God who endured death on a cross and conquered his own grave on the third day be powerful enough to save you, forgive you, heal your broken heart, restore your hope, calm your fears, free you from shame? Could he, answer, could, he, could he do that? I think the answer is yes. And will you act on that belief? And will you trust him? Let's pray together.
Father, we admit sometimes we do not understand why you do what you do and why you take the time you do to do it. But we only have so much understanding. We only have so much perspective. And we're at a loss sometimes when we, when we don't know where else to turn because everything else we've tried to figure out comes up short. We turn to you in our... Um, we believe is to help us overcome our unbelief. We want to be close to you. We, we want to follow and we want to be like you. Lord, build our faith and our trust in you and help us to act on it. In Jesus' name, we all said, Amen. Um, the Passover, Passover, that generous of you if you want to hear what I have to say. Uh, I'll just begin again. The Passover meal was uh, commemorated the Passover in Egypt when a lamb was sacrificed and the blood put over the door so that the death angel would pass over that house and leave it alone because God was going to do something so severe that Pharaoh would finally be convinced he should let the Israelites go. Everyone in the house with the lamb's blood over the door was to eat a meal of prescribed things among which was unleavened bread or the bread of haste because they would be leaving soon. This all resulted in a, la- uh, in a later gathering spoken of in chapter 23 and 24 of Exodus where a covenant was agreed upon between God and his people, the Israelites, where God promised them a land of their own to be their God and bless all their efforts, and they in turn promised to obey God's word and laws. The covenant was ratified by sacrificing young bulls and pouring out the blood on the altar and sprinkling it on the people. And the people said, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. And Moses said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Well, we know that the people and their descendants down through the centuries utterly failed to keep this covenant, keep this agreement. Fast forward to the Last Supper. The meal has the same ingredients and commemorates that great event and the covenant that was made. It has been the same in Jerusalem every year for centuries. It must have been a bit of a shock to watch Jesus distribute the unleavened bread and say, Take and eat. This is my body. 
and later in the meal another shock when he took a cup of wine mixed with water and said drink from it all of you this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins because with that language Jesus effectively took over the place the sacrificial lamb held for centuries and a new covenant was born he fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 53 which says he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors and Jeremiah 31 where it says the time is coming declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more the new covenant like the old was sealed by the pouring out of blood and by the people's agreement we for our part are to in this the Lord's Supper lovingly remember his sacrifice to embrace him by faith and to anticipate his glorious return for he has said I will drink this cup anew with you in the future kingdom let us pray father you have shown us yourself by the person of our son and our your son and our savior Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth Everyone who knows something about Jesus knows something about you. You have become accessible to us by your spirit that you put in us when we first believed. Now our prayer is for stronger faith, courage, and wisdom. You have said, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. We pray for the blessings that will surely come from knowing you more. We hope for the forgiveness and eternal life promised in Jesus' sacrifice and give thanks for the continued work of the Holy Spirit here on earth. It's in Jesus' name we pray.